This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Today I want to talk to you about a subject that's really been heavy on my heart this week. And, and um, I want to talk to you about moving beyond elementary Christianity. And to lead us into this time together, let me just open my heart to you. Many of you know, at least part of my background, I was raised in a wonderful Christian home like some of you were. And even though I recognize there are probably no perfect parents, yet from my perspective back then and even now, I felt that my parents were about as close to perfection as you could get. I wish I would have been the good parent to my kids that my parents were to me. Uh, my parents spent time with me. They, they taught me responsibility. They instilled in me a strong work ethic. They showed me compassion without enabling me and spoiling me. So I, I knew what the rod was. I knew what the belt was. And with mom, I knew what the hairbrush was. And, and then perhaps one of the greatest factors um, is that as I look back, they had a walk with God that was so genuine and so so refreshing. And, and honestly, I can't ever remember any hypocrisy or pretending in their lives. They, they made mistakes, but they were always quick to make amends. And maybe their close walk with God was because they both had such a love for God's Word. And, and um, I, I, I've heard the story many times, and it inspires me every time. But when, when my dad was born... My grandmother, who was a godly woman, she took my dad's little stubby hands and placed them on the Bible and prayed that my dad would have a love for God's Word, and, and he did, and, and, and so, did, so did my mom, and, and I truly believe they loved Jesus with all of their heart, but I have a confession about me. <laughs> You couldn't always say that about me. When I made the decision to follow Christ as a seven-year-old boy, I didn't do so because I loved Jesus. I, and don't think less of me, but, but I became a Christian, or, or you know, in some circles we used to call it getting saved. But, but I got saved not because I loved Jesus, but I got saved because I loved me. And I wanted to save my skin. And this was not the fault of my parents. They didn't present it to me this way, but, but, but I don't know what happened, why, why it got in my, my head. Maybe other people presented salvation to me like this. Joe, would you like to accept Jesus into your heart so you can go to heaven and, and not have to burn in hell and, and burn in the lake of fire forever and ever? And as the book of Mark says in the King James Version, where the worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched. And, and so as a seven-year-old boy, you know, when salvation is pre presented to that, that way to you, is basically turn or burn, what would the seven-year-old say? Well, oh, yeah, I think I'd want to burn in hell. Sounds good to me. No, I, I wanted to save my skin. And so this ornery kid went forward to an altar and prayed and invited Jesus to come into his heart, not because he loved Jesus, but because he didn't want to go to hell when he died. Now, as a whole, my early Christianity, even though my motives were skewed, it, it served me pretty well. I, I, I certainly wasn't perfect. I messed up plenty of times, but, but, but I wasn't a terribly bad boy. 
But again, my Christianity was all about me. As a seven-year-old boy, it was about being a good boy. And then when, my, when I became a teenager, it was about being a good teenager. And I went to college, it became about being a good college student. Then when I got a job, it became about being a good employee. And when I finally got lucky and, and found somebody that would marry me, my Christianity then became about being a good husband. And then God blessed us with a, a couple of daughters, and it became about being a good daddy, and, and on and on. I mean, I had to be a good Christian. Why? Because... I didn't want to go to hell. And finally, after serving the Lord several decades, now I'm starting, hopefully starting to, to grow up a bit spiritually and get a better grasp on what it means to follow Jesus. Yet too many times I catch my, my Christianity defaulting back to it being more about loving me and, and being good enough to avoid hell and being, uh, I mean, yeah, I didn't want to go to hell and being good enough to make it to heaven and being good enough to get the blessings out of Christianity. Now, I'm sure that none of you were ever that way, but the interesting thing is that when you read the New Testament, it appears that most of the disciples were like Joe Trussell. They, they were thinking, okay, if I follow Jesus, good things are going to happen to me. If I follow Jesus, I will get to avoid hell and get to go to heaven. If I follow Jesus, it will be my ticket to a good and, and prosperous and comfortable and hopefully pain-free life. To illustrate that, one day Jesus was teaching a really powerful lesson on how hard it is for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. And, and he used a scripture that many of you would remember about it being easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to go to heaven. And, and so, by the way, if your goal is to be rich, the scripture might cause you to change your mind or actually it's too late you're already rich did you know that if you as a family make twelve thousand dollars per year you're in the top 13 percent of wage earners in the entire world and i did some figuring so you only have to make eight dollars an hour which is three dollars or so less than minimum wage and work only an average of 30 hours per week and you will make over twelve thousand dollars a year but then if you as a family make $25,000 per year, you move into the top 10% of wage earners in the world. And to make $25,000 a year, you need to work minimum wage, which is what, eleven fifteen dollars an hour, and average working 43 hours a week, and you'll make twenty-five dollars And then if you as a family make $47,000, $500,000 per year, you move in, listen to this, because some of you are there, you move into the top 1% of wage earners in the entire world. But all of that to say that it's, it's really hard for rich people like us that make over $12,000 a year, it's really hard for us to make it into the kingdom of heaven. And so in the book of Mark, Jesus is talking about that and Let's listen in on a conversation between the disciples and Jesus in Mark chapter 10, verse 26. The disciples were astounded. Astounded at what? Well, the teaching, you know what, about, you know, the camel going through the eye of a needle, hard for rich people. The disciples were astounded. Then who in the world can be saved, they asked. And Jesus looked at them intently and said, humanly speaking, it's impossible. So, humanly speaking, it is impossible for you to be saved. Impossible. Not improbable. Impossible. Humanly speaking, impossible. But not with God. 
everything is possible with God. Well, this caused Peter to do a little bit of thinking, and, and the statement actually bothered him a little bit because he had this fishing business with his dad, and all of a sudden Jesus showed up, and, and there was Peter's dad standing by the boat, and, and Peter essentially said, hey, hey, Dad, by the way, I'm going to follow this stranger that showed up yesterday. You know the guy with long hair? And no, no, I, I don't know him, but I'm going to follow him. I don't know when I'll be back. Tell Mom I love her. See you later. Well, at the end of this teaching on how hard it is for rich people to get to heaven, Peter kind of blurts out what he had been thinking. In verse 28, it says, Then Peter began to mention all that he and the other disciples had left behind. And his mind said, We've given up everything to follow you. Peter was saying, Hey, Jesus, we've sacrificed a lot to follow you. We've left our family businesses. We've given up living where our families have lived for several generations. I mean, think about this. Many of you, your parents, your grandparents have lived in this community for years. And and even though you don't like everything about this community, yet this is home for you. And I know I've heard a few of you say, I can hardly wait to get out of this place. But, but for the rest of you, it would be tough for you to leave your family, leave your friends, and everything that has been comfortable for years. And, and Peter and the disciples had done that. And, and so Peter implies, Jesus, since we've left everything comfortable, we've sacrificed so much for you. And Jesus, I know we've really been a big help to you. We've made your life easier and taken a big load off of you. Joke, joke. Surely, Jesus, you will notice all of our service to you and reward us. At this point, Peter wasn't following Jesus because he loved Jesus. He was following Jesus because he loved himself. He was like, what's in this for me? I've been following you, so Jesus, what's my surprise? Which, by the way, and I pray that God will help us understand this. This is Christianity at an elementary level. Anytime we think that by serving Jesus, we will get a star or a happy face sticker You know, church people like to call them blessings. But anytime we serve Jesus to keep something bad from happening to us, or or we serve Jesus to have good things happen to us, that is Christianity at an elementary level. Another example of the shallow level of Christianity and the one on which we will focus uh, the rest of our lesson centers around a disciple that became one of the most infamous people in all of history. His name was Judas, Judas Iscariot. Now, in many ways, to begin with, Judas was just like the rest of the disciples. He was hopeful that Jesus would establish himself as a strong Jewish king that would be a deliverer and kick Rome out of Palestine. And with that in mind, Judas waited and he watched. He watched and he waited. But as he waited and as he watched, there were some things about Jesus that really bugged him. For one, Jesus went too slow. Jesus wanted Jesus to go fast and establish his kingdom and throw out the Romans. But Jesus was too chill. He was in no rush to do that. Secondly, Judas began to notice that Jesus didn't hate the Romans. In his mind, if there was going to be a grassroots movement against the Romans, you needed to hate the Romans. And Jesus didn't. Something else that bugged Judas is that whereas Jesus 
treated the Romans with respect, yet on the other hand, he didn't show much respect to the religious leaders. And, and Judas thought, hey, Jesus, if you're going to establish yourself as the Messiah, you need to work through the system. And, and the system at that time would have been the high priests and, and, and the Pharisees. And, and you need to cater to them, and you're not doing that. In fact, you're being critical of them publicly. And then there was the incident in Bethany, and this incident appeared to be the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back. And I don't know if they used that expression back then, but there in the first century where the camel was used as a beast of burden, breaking the camel's back would have uh, certainly been relevant. But anyway, today we want to spend some time looking at the incident that drove Judas over the brink. And the reason I want to spend the majority of our lesson on this is because, come up close and listen to me, I think there's a little bit of Judas in you. I know there's a little bit of Judas in me, and I think there's a little bit of Judas in you. So, Matthew, who was there, tells us in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6, while Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon, listen to how it identifies Simon, Simon the leper. Now, we don't really know who Simon the leper was, and when it identifies him as a leper, it probably doesn't mean that he was still a leper. Lepers were looked down upon because leprosy was so contagious I mean, uh, just remember back a couple of years ago, the way we were told to approach life at the very beginning of the COVID pandemic. At that time, we called it Corona, the Rona, coronavirus. And re remember this, and maybe you don't remember this, but since I have such a good memory, uh, re remember when they said, when the mail is delivered to your box, don't touch your mail for two, three, four days. How many of you remember that? They said, no, 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 maybe get some gloves and a mask and take the mail out of the box and then put it aside for two to three days. Um, and then uh, I, remember, I remember the first person, and, and this person is, is here in this church right now, this, this building, this service, but I remember the first person in our church that at least I was aware of who, who got COVID, and, and, and that person talked to me, sent me an email and said, well, I just want you to know what's, what's going on. And, you know, at that time, it was so early in the process, it was like they were horrible people. And, and, and this person actually, on social media, they were letting this person have it. It's like, you terrible person, why'd you get COVID? Um, well, lepers were looked down upon and, and they were they were like that. They were not even supposed to be in the city limits. You didn't dare get close to them. And, and so I don't think that an active leper would have hosted a dinner party. So we just kind of assumed that maybe Simon the leper had been healed by Jesus. We really don't know. But carried on the nickname of, of, of a leper, which would be really a tough name, a, a tough nickname. It'd be like saying, oh, there goes Joe, the AIDS guy. There goes Joe, the HIV positive guy or... Back, back a couple of years ago, you know, there goes Joe the COVID guy, but of course, we would all have that nickname today. So, at this gathering in the home of Simon the leper, in, in verse 7, Matthew chapter 26, during supper, a woman came in with a beautiful jar of expensive perfume and poured it over his head. 
Try to just visualize that. The disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste of money, they said. She could have sold it for a fortune and given the money to the poor. Now, this had to be a super awkward moment. Um, and this past week, I tried to think of, of a modern-day situation that might help us relate to the awkwardness. And kind of just bear with me as I, I, I give a Cedar County illustration here. Let's just say that your family, your family, decided to invite my wife and I over for supper or, or dinner, whichever you grew up saying. And as we drove into your driveway and got out of our car, the aroma in the air, oh, it was divine. You could tell that there was some kind of meat on the grill. I, I mean, the aroma was heavenly, and, and, and sorry if you're vegan, this might offend you, but uh, the, the aroma of that meat was incredible. Well, let, let's say that we ring the doorbell, and, and you open the door for us, and as we walk in, coming from the back deck is the grillmeister, and we'll just say it was the husband in this case, and... He has a large tray with a large filet mignon still steaming. And he places that in the middle of the table. And the rest of the sides are put on the table. And we all sit down with excitement. And you, you're the host. You say a prayer over the meal. We're given the green light to dig in. The salad is passed around. The baked potatoes are passed around. And I put one on my plate and then put a half a pound of real butter on mine. And, and then the perfectly seasoned vegetable is passed around. And then finally, the crown jewel starts making its way around. And, and I try not to be greedy, but I choose a slice of filet that's about three inches thick, six inches wide, and eight inches long. <laughs> and is grilled to perfection. Medium. You know, just a little bit of pink, but cooked enough to where it's not moving nor moving. We all pick up our forks to dig in. But let's just say at that, at that moment, I come unglued like you've never seen me come unglued in the 28 years that we've been here as friends and as your pastor. And um, my face turns red and my, my blood vessels in my neck start popping out and I start yelling to you wonderful people that are treating us to this amazing meal. And I yell, guys, what do you think you're doing? You're idiots. And I'm mad. Have you thought about how much this meal is costing? I mean, seriously, have you thought about how many starving kids in Africa you could feed with the money you're going to throw down on this meal? What a stupid waste. I can't believe you're doing this. Now, by the way, I would never do that. You can invite me over for filet. <laughs> every week, every day, hint, hint, hint. I will never judge you, and I will never react that way. But for our illustration, let's pretend that I did. Can you imagine the awkwardness, how embarrassed you would be, how hurt, maybe even angry, and rightly so? In your mind, you thought you were doing something special for us, and never in a million years would you have expected that reaction from me. Now, take the cost of that meal that you so generously provided for us, and the filet alone today would be some major bucks. But take the cost of that and the rest of the food, and then take factor in the emotions 
that would have surfaced during this incident and multiply those many, many, many times over, and that would give you a glimpse of the awkwardness of that dinner party. I'm, I'm telling you, this was awkward. Well, not only do we have Matthew's account of this awkward moment, but we also have an account of this from the Gospel of John, and John's account adds one little detail that Matthew left out. That's what I love about the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, one will insert a detail that stood out to him and didn't stand out to another one. But this is a very crucial detail, and here's the detail. It appears that it wasn't all of the disciples that were complaining that it was a terrible waste of resources to dump this expensive jar of perfume on Jesus' head. Here's the one who was causing the ruckus in John chapter 12. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Like in a courtroom setting, objection. What did he object to? To the lady pouring out the entire jar of expensive perfume on Jesus' head. So the criticism originated from one person. Who was it? Judas. And by the way, many problems in a business, many problems in an office, many problems in a church, many problems in a school, many problems on a ball team, many problems on a board of directors can be traced back to one person. One person becomes unhappy, starts complaining, being critical. And it's amazing how one person can infect an entire organization. And that's why there's a strong warning, just kind of as an aside in the book of Titus. It says, warn a divisive person once and then warn him again and then have nothing to do with him because divisiveness is so instru- so destructive and so that's why this advice is given to church leaders if there's someone in a church organization that's causing division it says deal with it deal with it in a godly manner but in a prompt manner in a bold manner don't let divisiveness go unchecked but anyway Judas is the instigator and says in verse 5 Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now, can we we use our imagination a bit and just read between the lines? Judas, because he's, he's still in elementary school spiritually, he wasn't mature, maybe he leaned over to the disciple seated to his right. And we'll just say, you know, my right, your left, but we'll just say that that was Bartholomew. The Bible doesn't say. but And maybe he says, Hey, Bart, just between you and me. And by the way, um, I've learned a couple of things when someone says, just between you and me. First of all, it probably isn't something that should be repeated. It probably is gossip or a subject matter that should not be discussed. Secondly, I've learned that when someone says, just between you and me, it's not just between you and me. Because that's what they've said to other people. And it's kind of like what we, you know, whenever we criticize someone, what do we end up with? Bless their hearts because it makes us feel like we're absolved of that gossip. Uh, Bless their hearts. But maybe Judas says to Bartholomew, just between you and me. How much do you think that alabaster jar of perfume is worth? And 
and maybe Bar Bartholomew is trying to figure it out, and Judah says, you know what, I just Google this on my phone. <laughs> and here's what I found out, Bartholomew. I found out that this is worth a year's wages. And maybe Judah says, can you believe that that lady just wasted a year's wages like that? And furthermore, can you believe that our master allowed it to happen? So he's also responsible for this horrible waste. Well, then maybe Judas turns to the disciples sitting on his left, and, and we'll just say it was James. And, and maybe he says, hey, Jimmy, just between you and me, can you believe what just happened? I mean, think of all the starving kids in Africa and here Jesus, supposedly the Messiah that claims to love the lost, the last, and the least. He allowed one year's wages to be wasted, poured on his own head, onto the floor. This is ridiculous. This is terrible stewardship. Jimmy, I, I don't know about you, but I, I can't stay silent anymore. I'm going to have to speak up. I'm going to have to do something about it. Now, question. Was Judas really concerned about the poor? <laughs> Let's keep on reading. Verse 6. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. <laughs> what a rascal. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. So, so he was thinking, oh, year's wages. This money could have been in, put into the treasury, which would have then become part of my treasury. Now, I was wondering this past week, how do you think Judas became the treasurer? I mean, we don't know. But maybe as people began making donations for the disciples to, to, to give to the poor, Judas maybe said, hey, who's going to take care of the money? And maybe with a little bit of a joke, but yet some seriousness, he said, you know, we certainly don't want Matthew to take care of the money because his background, he's a tax collector and, you know, he steals. We can't trust him. And then maybe he said, you know what, Thomas struggles a little bit just with math. He can't add two plus two. And, and, and James is ADD and he'd get distracted, forget what he's doing. Peter, you know what, he had a big mouth. He he, he blabs a lot. He, he, he's an open book, and he would probably tell how much everybody donated. So we, we don't know how he got into this position, but Judas somehow ended up as treasurer. And the Bible says that as someone who had access to the money bag, Judas took advantage of position, helped himself of his position, and helped himself to the money. As Judas saw the lady pour out a year's worth of wages, he began whispering to the other disciples, spreading discontentment. Now, let me just say here, it's always a bad idea to whisper to someone in the presence of Jesus. In fact, it's not even a good idea to think a bad thought in the presence of Jesus, because Jesus knows not only what we're whispering, but he knows what we're thinking. Do I hear an amen? Which leads me to say this to us. Those that of you are watching the live stream or listening on radio or here in the building, um, Jesus is always omnipresent. That's a word we learn in Bible college, just means that he's everywhere. So he's wherever you are. Uh, and, and then remember, Jesus is always omniscient. That just means Jesus means Jesus knows everything. He's all-knowing. So, so you're whispering, those times that you say, just between you and me, it's not just between you and me. Jesus knows what you're whispering. He knows what you're thinking. And Judas obviously had forgotten that. And so he probably secretly 
went to the woman to confront her, and Jesus busted him. And in verse 10, Matthew chapter 26, aware of this, Jesus said to them, why are you bothering this woman? She's done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever this gospel is preached, and this is amazing, wherever this gospel is preached, in other words, where the story of Jesus is told, like even here in El Dorado Springs, says throughout the world what she has done will also be told in memory of her. And so today, do you know we're fulfilling that scripture? Isn't that cool? We're fulfilling Scripture today. And this seemingly insignificant event in that little tiny area that last week we said the Romans referred to as the dusty armpit of the world. They hated that area. Bunch of troublemakers. But here 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this extravagant act of worship where this lady, because of her love for Jesus, poured out the equivalent of one year's wages. Can can we put that into perspective today as far as wages? And I don't have the figures for 2022, but in 2019, in our country, the, the personal median wage, and of course that's different than the average, it knocks out the highs and the lows, and it's actually, we would call it the average, it's, it's closer to that. But the personal median wage for the average American was $36,000. So imagine pouring perfume, a bottle of perfume, pouring out 36000 bucks. And this is what I want to get across. Try to understand that that pleased Jesus. Because, listen, this woman wasn't cheap when it came to giving to Jesus. You know, Jesus always has cautioned us about living a life of luxury or extravagance, being pampered. And, but when it comes to our worship of Jesus, he's pleased with extravagant acts of worship. And again, he, he warns us against materialism and, and extravagant lifestyles, but, but he loves our extravagant acts of worship. And this past week, as I was prepping in my office, I, I stopped. I stopped my preparation. And I said, Lord, help my worship to be more extravagant. Help my worship to be extravagant like the worship of this lady. So what happened next? Well, in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, then, and this is an important then, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So basically Judas had had enough. He was basically like, Jesus, if you're going to allow that expensive perfume to be wasted on you when there are so many poor people around us that are hungry, if you're not going to start acting more like the real Messiah, I'm done, I'm out of here, I've given you three years of my life, I'm not going to waste any more time with you, I'm done. And so Judas went to the chief priests, and he said, look, I I know what you want to do. I know you want to arrest Jesus. And I know that your problem is is not that you can't find Jesus, you just look for the biggest crowd around, he's in the middle of it. 
But the problem is that because of the crowds, you can't get to him. And, and if you'd happen to be lucky enough to get to him and push your way up to him and arrest him, you would be annihilated by the crowds. Because right now they're pretty passionate about this guy that multiplies bread and fish to feed 5,000 people, gives sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. So, so Judas says, if you try to arrest him in a crowd, you're going to lose. So Judas says, I'm going to do you a favor. I happen to be on his executive board. I happen to have access to his calendar. And I'm going to look at his calendar and find out when, when he's going to be away from the crowds. But here's the catch. Judas said, I want to be compensated. You know, because this comes at significant risk to me and my reputation. So I want to be, I want it to be worth my time. What are you willing to pay for, for Jesus? Let's see if we can cut a deal. Well, Judas and the chief priests come to an agreement, and here's what they agree upon. Verse 15, so they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. From then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, let's just pretend that we would have had a conversation with Judas and reminded him of some things. When I said, Judas, what are you thinking by doing this? I mean, do you not remember the afternoon you were on the Sea of Galilee in a boat, and that terrible storm came up, and you thought you were going under, and so you woke up Jesus, and... And he talked to the storm, and it was like he said to the storm, knock it off, storm. And it did. The waters calmed. Judas, do you not remember the day you stood outside of Lazarus' tomb, and Lazarus had been in there long enough to where even the family was like, oh, no, no, don't move that rock. You'll be sorry. Won't smell very good. And Jesus called out his name, and he came walking out of the tomb. Judas, have you forgotten that? Judas, do you not remember the day that it was kind of gross at the moment, but Jesus spit in the dirt and made some mud and smeared that mud on someone's eyes and, and they saw. Judas, what's wrong with you? What are you thinking? Well, during Passover, Judas heard that Jesus was going to take the 12 disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane at night and pray. So Judas slipped out of dinner early, went to the Pharisees, to the chief priests, and said, okay, get your guys ready. You guys have to move fast. Jesus is headed to the Garden of Gethsemane. You need to meet us there. It's going to be dark, so bring torches and bring soldiers. And listen, pay attention to me. Don't mess this up. We may not have another opportunity for a while. So watch for my signal. Guys, are you listening? This will be my signal. I will give a kiss. So Judas met them there on that fateful evening. He kissed Jesus on the cheek. The chief priests arrested Jesus. The disciples fled. And here's what Matthew tells us happened the very next morning. Matthew 27, early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away. And, and this is where things begin to fall apart for Judas, handing him over to Pilate the governor. 
Now, we're going to read the next verse, and it, it appears from this next verse that Judas was thinking, wait, 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 you didn't say anything about executing him. Judas probably thought they were going to scourge him, whip him, maybe put him in prison, jail for a while, then let him go. And so in verse 3, when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, condemned to death, he was seized with remorse. And he took the 30 pieces of silver back to the chief priests and the elders. And it was like, he was thinking, no, 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 no. I want to hit the undo button. No, I've messed up. Verse 4, he says, I've sinned. I've betrayed innocent blood. But the religious leaders didn't care. They, they, they said, we don't give a rip. What is that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. You deal with that. We had a deal. You know, there are some trains that once they leave the station, you can't get them back. There are certain decisions that once you make them, you can't unmake them. Yes, you can receive forgiveness, but the consequences will be there the rest of your life. And so, verse 5, Judas threw the money into the temple, (laughs) tried to give it to the chief priests. They wouldn't take it. So he took the money and pitched it into the temple. He was so full of guilt, so full of shame. And then after that, he went away, hanged himself. But check this out. This is interesting. In the ultimate expression of hypocrisy, verse 6, the chief priest picked up the coins and said, "Uh, it's against the law to put this into the treasury since it's blood money. Now, follow me. This is one of the craziest things ever. The, The chief priest says, you know, we need to make sure that we don't put this money in the wrong piggy bank. Because they had a law that said, Blood money or money that was associated with someone's death was not allowed to go into their general fund. Which, do you catch the implication here? I, I'd never really thought about this until I was just studying the scripture. Evidently, this wasn't the first time that money had been exchanged for someone's death. Did you catch the implication there? Because they had already come up with a law. So this money could not go into the general fund. And and, uh, this is what is so crazy. The guys who arrested Jesus on false charges leveraged the power of Rome to do the dirty work, execute this innocent man. Here they're concerned about what fund these 30 pieces of silver are going to go into. Isn't that a crazy level of hypocrisy? But we do the same thing. Here's the way we do it. You know, we want God to judge the gays. We want God to judge the drug dealers and the hardened, hardened criminals. But we want God to overlook the fact that we say a bad word on occasion and that we tell a lie of convenience on occasion and that we gossip on occasion. You know, there, there are many of us here that We've been guilty of this just between you and me stuff. That's why the Bible says, oh, I pray that we would understand this. The Bible says our hearts are so deceitfully wicked. You know, we say, I know my heart. No, you don't know your heart. Now, the Holy Spirit can help us to see into our heart, but 
Our hearts are so deceitfully wicked because we want punishment for others that do wrong, but we want to justify our wrong and we want God to be a God of grace for us. That shows how messed up our hearts are. So here's what they did in verse 7. So they decided to use the money to buy the potter's field as a burial place for foreigners. And, and, and here, in essence, is, is what they said. We can't deposit 30 pieces of silver into our general fund because it's blood money, so let's donate the money to charity. That, that's essentially what they did. That, let, let's buy a field to use as a burial plot for foreigners. That way, we won't be guilty of breaking any of the church rules. And, and by the way, if, if you are someone that struggles believing the inspiration, the reliability of the Word of God, these little details here are so significant because you can go to the Holy Land today and see the potter's field, or what Scripture calls the field of blood. It's just south of the old city of Jerusalem in the Valley of Hinnom. You can go there. These little details, not that the Bible needs any more proof. It doesn't. It stands alone. But whenever you see these things, it's like, oh, God, thank you for a reliable book. That's why it's been called the field of blood to this day. So, what does this lesson have to do with you and me? And what does this lesson have to do with our moving out of elementary Christianity? But when we begin following Jesus, most of us start out like I did and like the disciples did. We begin serving Jesus not because we love him so much, but because we love us. And we want to save our skin and we don't want to go to hell. And we serve God for what we can get out of it. We, we think being a Christian, we mean God will bless us. But then if God doesn't do what we want him to do, the, the elementary Christianity causes us to become like Judas. We, we get our feelings hurt. We get disgruntled towards God, towards the church, towards people. And so we go off upset and do our own thing. My friend, that is Christianity at the elementary level. And of course, that led to the tragic undoing of Judas. He was so miserable that he tragically ended his life. And can I say this? I, I just pray that the Holy Spirit would help us understand this. That elementary Christianity, half-hearted Christianity, God called it lukewarm Christianity, is one of the most frustrating places to be. You know, there's nothing wrong with being in elementary school, but you can't stay in elementary all of your life. That would be so frustrating. And so I pray that you would hear me that Having a walk with God is the best thing ever, and it's so fulfilling, so wonderful. Unless the walk that we have with God is shallow, half-hearted, elementary, then I will say that that experience with God is one of the most frustrating things ever. Because we have enough of God to know His ways, but yet our will is divided. And you know, it's basically we're torn between two lovers. One lover being God, but the other lover being our will. And, and whenever we're just so shallow in our walk with God, your Christianity, my Christianity is going to be so frustrating. And that was Judas. He knew Jesus, but he hadn't surrendered his will to him and it ended horribly. 
However, if you study the rest of the disciples, even though they started out as Judas did, they had their days in elementary school spiritually, yet on the day of Pentecost, something happened to them, and they allowed God to do a work in them, and he, and he filled them with the Spirit, and they surrendered their full will to Jesus, and, and they were able to move on from elementary Christianity where they got upset at people easily, and where they were bothered when they got the short end of the deal, where they were inconsistent in their walk with God, but they truly surrendered their lives to God. And listen, things began to change. They began to have a courage and a boldness and began to love themselves less and love Jesus more. They began to have a passion to see people come to Jesus. Their prayers were no longer, okay, God, here are my plans for today. Bless my plans. Now it was, God, not my will but yours. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.